For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 1, actually through 17. And in this passage, Paul details God's view of sex, marriage, and divorce, which, um, you know, it's, it's pertinent to our culture. People have a lot of questions about marriage. People feel very confused about God's view of it. So we want to study it. Let's begin in verse 1. Paul says, Now for the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. So apparently they were asking Paul this question, is it okay for us to get married? And um, he says, well, under the circumstances that you guys are in, it's probably not. And yet, he says this in verse 2. Since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So they're asking, should we get married or not? And he says, yes, you should get married. Or, or you know, in, in other cases, you should remain unmarried. Depends on the situation. Well, in verses 26 and 27, and really 28, he elaborates on sort of the problem, the predicament that they were running into. He says, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. So he says that there is this crisis that they're facing. And most biblical scholars believe that what was going on is that the Corinthian people were undergoing intense persecution. So they were concerned that if they got married and started a family, that they would be in danger of suffering loss because of persecution. So they were afraid, legitimately. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin or an unmarried person marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. So he's saying, it's better to remain single under the present circumstances because I want to spare you from the troubles of this life. And then in verse 32 and 33, he says, I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And again, in verse 35, he says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may have life or may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So on the one hand, he says that his purpose behind telling them that they should maybe remain in the state in which God has called them single is because of the possibility that persecution might cause them to suffer loss. And we know from ancient extra biblical texts that you know, some Christians suffered loss of their family, their spouses, their children uh, as a result of persecution. But he also points out that one of, the, one of the benefits of remaining unmarried is that you can stay devoted uh, to God. You know, when you have a family, you have obligations, you have worries, anxieties, how your family's going to do. And if you remain single 
that allows you to be unencumbered in your devotion to God. He says in verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The marital duty is, um, you know, um, not withholding from your spouse. He says, you know, if you're married, make sure to give it up. Don't be uh, holding out. And um, <clears throat> I think this I was coming from the problem that we described last week, but it was a different expression or a different form of Greek dualism. You know, last week we talked about how the Greek dualists believed that the, the body, the physical, was separate from the spiritual or the mind. So therefore, some Corinthians were actually saying, you know, we might as well go out and sleep with prostitutes and do whatever we want because whatever we do with our body really has no impact on our mind or on our soul. And Paul refuted that. But on the other hand, there was a different branch of dualists who were the, the Stoics. And these guys basically said that anything that's physical, that is evil or morally wrong. And so therefore, you should live a life where you restrict your physical desires and that you should deprive yourself of physical pleasures. And so apparently the Corinthians were falling into this sort of thinking as well and were depriving each other of sex even though they were married. And Paul says, look, you better give it up. Verse 4 and 5, he says, The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says, so if you want to withhold from each other, in the case of, you know, prayer... If you're intensely praying, then yeah, you could, you could stop for, you know, a few hours if, if uh, you're devoting yourself to God. But then afterwards, better give it up, right? <laughs> now, I think verse 4 is of interest to us. You know, it's easy to gloss over a verse like this. But I think if you were in the ancient world and you read a statement like this, a wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. I think, you know, your jaw would drop to the floor because in the ancient world, you know, people did not regard women and children as being equal to men. They were often regarded as property, unlike today. And so I think it's really interesting because in our culture today, most people regard equality as one of the most important values that we possess as modern people. And yet we often, you know, pat ourselves on the back or take a sense of pride like, you know, we were the ones who came up with this, that we were smart enough to, to and liberated enough to, to view equality as this important thing. And yet here we are. You know, 2,000 years ago, Paul writing this incredible countercultural view um, of women. And so 
This, this concept of equality, even though it's very popular today, finds its roots in Christianity. You know, you compare that to other religions like Hinduism. And in Hindu thinking, people are not equal. That's why, you know, you have the caste system. Um, you know, in other world religions, women are often regarded as second class to men. You know, you think about Islam, for example, and uh, one of the rewards in paradise is that you as a man are able to deflower, you know, buxom virgins as many as you can, as you can, as you desire. And so women are often regarded as, you know, property. And yet God says that men and women are equal on the basis that he created us both in, in his image. And so that's really the basis for equality. I mean, in what sense, you know, is a six foot five, 250 pound man equal to, you know, a, a, a small woman? I mean, he's bigger than her. He can dominate her. You know, when we say that, we're not suggesting that physically they're equal. We're saying in terms of their value, they're equal, right? And yet, what's the basis for saying that people are equal? In our world today, if, you know, we're just material beings, if we're just physical, there really is no basis for equality other than the fact that we state this as some sort of, you know, truth that uh, we all have to believe. Well, he says in verse six, I say this as a concession, not as a command. And he's talking about people who want to get married under the circumstances, In verse 7, he says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. So the gift he's probably referring to is the ability to remain unmarried. It's likely that Paul at one point in his life was married because he was a Pharisee. And a lot of times the Pharisees were married. And he probably served on the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. But it's possible, probably likely, that when Paul became a Christian, his wife left him uh, because that, you know, would have been apostasy in their minds. And so from that point on, he probably remained single. He says in verse 9, but if you can't control yourselves, then you should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Yeah. Better to marry than to just sit there and burn. Um, Now, you know, when you look at the Bible, one of the things that it outlines is that God has given us the gift of sex, but that he wants us to express that within a certain context. And he makes that very clear all the way in Genesis chapter 2 when, you know, he created men and women. And Jesus gives us Probably the clearest statement about marriage in Matthew 19, verse 4 through 6. Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined, let man not separate. So, A few things to take note of. First of all, he says that he made them male and female. One of the things that's 
countercultural today is to point out that God's uh, picture of marriage is between a man and a woman. And, um, you know, this is not a, a political statement. It's not suggesting that, you know, uh, we should try to put this biblical view onto our culture, but the Bible recognizes marriage when it's between a man and a woman. Secondly, uh, Jesus points out that when these two individuals come together, they become united together. That marriage is a union uh, before God. You know, through marriage, you have incredible unity and closeness. That's one of the reasons why God has given us marriage is to experience the kind of relational depth that you can't experience in other contexts. And so as you get married and, and you grow in your relationship with your spouse, uh, God knits you together with that person so that over time, this person becomes your closest friend, your confidant, your, your partner in serving God. Secondly, it's the outlet that God has given for pleasure. You know, contrary to what many churches seem to broadcast about God, he's not anti-sex. He's actually the one who gave us sex, and he commanded people to have sex. So God wasn't like surprised when he saw the original humans, you know, having sex. I mean, after all, he's the one who created and, and created our equipment to experience it, right? Um, there are a number of passages in the Old Testament, especially that, that, you know, detail how God delights in us having sex in a, in a marriage context. Here's one from uh, Song of Songs. If you ever read this, it's a pretty racy material. Here's one. Your stature is like that of a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb that palm tree, and I will take hold of its fruit. You're like, whoa, that's in the Bible? All right. Now, um, I'll give you a hint. He's not talking about gathering a harvest here. He's speaking metaphorically, okay? And so, you know, God wants us to experience pleasure. He's, he's not anti-sex. But he's created parameters. He set banks uh, to the river so that, you know, when we enjoy sex... You know, we don't damage ourselves by going outside of that. And um, I think, you know, many of us have ventured outside of God's design. Um, and, you know, we look back on our lives a lot of times with regret because of the damage that we've experienced uh, by living outside of God's design. You know, sex can be a source of intense pleasure or acute pain. Think about <clears throat> Proverbs six twenty seven. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? He says, um, oh, the rest of it says, so is a man who sleeps with a prostitute. And so, you know, you think about fire. Fire is like a good thing, right, in certain contexts. You know, when you're 
cooking, you know, food uh, over an open flame. Uh, that's a good thing. Or maybe you decide you want to enjoy a nice fire with your friends. That, that could be a source of enjoyment and uh, ambiance. But, you know, if you threw a coal into your lap, that would be bad, right? <laughs> Why? Because, you know, laps were not made for fire. <laughs> and so, likewise, you know, when we venture outside of God's design, we end up burning ourselves, damaging ourselves in a way that, you know, leaves us with scars even many years later as we're trying to form healthy, you know, marriage relationships. And then he says, the two shall become one flesh. Notice he doesn't say three, five, or 20, right? He's saying that this is a monogamous relationship between uh, two individuals. And so that's God's design for us to become one and to uh, have that lasting relationship. And then he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You know, this points to the fact that God is the one who's responsible for uniting us in marriage. That in his sovereignty, he has led us or will lead us to our future spouse. And so one of the things that uh, we should be conscious of is that, you know, as we put God at the center of our marriages, or our relationships, we actually grow closer to one another. You know, the breakdown that we experience in our relationships has to do with the fact that we place these unrealistic expectations on the person who we're trying to form a relationship with. You know, often in marriage, you know, two people are looking to one another to fulfill them completely, to bring them happiness, to bring them complete joy. And often, you know, they come out of that relationship feeling like, I'm pretty disappointed. I thought that this marriage was going to offer a lot more than it did. And yet, the truth is, God says the only one who can meet all of our needs, fulfill us completely, give us joy, is actually God himself. And so when we look to God to meet our deepest needs, the need for love and fulfillment, for purpose then we no longer have to place those expectations on our spouse. Not to mention, you know, as we, as we focus on our relationship with God and grow with him, he actually transforms our character so that we become more loving, more relational, which are, you know, things that we need for a successful marriage. And so God intended for marriage to have him at the center. Him is the foundation. He says too, you know, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You know, most people in our culture today don't wait to get married to enjoy the intimacy of sex, including Christians. We mentioned this statistic last week. Mark Regneris, a professor at University of Texas, says just under 80% of unmarried church-going conservative Protestants who are currently dating someone are having sex of some sort. You know, when you look at people who don't profess to be Christians, uh, they claim that 90% of unmarried people who don't associate with Christianity are having sex. So, 
really there's no difference between Christians and non-Christian people on this, on this area. You know, when you look at our culture today, most people don't get married until their late tw- 20s or 30s. This has actually risen by five years over the last, you know, 30 years. So, you know, 30 years ago, people were getting married in their early 20s. Now they're getting married in their late 20s. And so this makes it more difficult for us to, um, you know, remain uh, single and abstain from sexual immorality because we don't have the outlet of marriage for sex. Regnera says that's five additional long years of peak sexual interest and fertility. Christians tend to marry slightly earlier than Americans, but not by much. Many of them plan to marry in their mid-20s. Yet waiting for sex until then feels far too long for most of them. And I'm suggesting that when people wait until their mid uh, to late 20s to marry, it's unreasonable to expect them to refrain from sex. It's battling our creator's reproductive designs. And so what he advocates for actually is that, you know, people um, start thinking about the possibility that they could marry a little bit younger. And not follow our culture. You know, and I think that's difficult even for us. Because most of the time, people feel like, you know, you get married once you get your degree. Once you, you know, get your own place. Once you get some financial stability. And then you get married. You know, a lot of times we view marriage as sort of the capstone to our achievements. Rather than seeing it as an outlet or really the venue from which God wants us to have, you know, sexual intimacy with our partner. And so I think we need to reconsider this. I think we need to challenge our thinking and not just go along with what our culture says about marriage. I mean, if our culture is right and has, you know, really uh, the, the, um, is correct in its thinking about marriage, then why are there so many broken relationships and marriages in our world? Maybe we we shouldn't look to our culture as the source for the way we should live our lives. He says in verse 10 and 11, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Um, Other translations, like the New English translation says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife should not divorce her husband. I think in the context, that's probably what he's talking about. He's talking about divorce, not just like temporary separation. And it's likely that Paul had his finger right on the words of Jesus as he was writing this. And probably quoting Matthew 19, verse 9, where Jesus says, Anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And so, Paul is giving uh, the Corinthians the direct word from Jesus about marriage and divorce. Now, when you look at our culture today, nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. It's somewhere between 40 to 50% of all marriages end up in divorce. And I bet you if we took a poll in this room, uh, 
it probably would be representative of our population, our culture. Many of us, you know, have grown up or have experienced or watched our parents getting divorced. And yet, more and more people, maybe as a response to that, are living together before marriage. They are cohabiting as an alternative. Probably because they feel like, you know, I watch my parents go through a messy divorce and I just, I don't, I don't feel very optimistic about my chances. And so maybe what I need to do is I need to live with my partner, you know, see whether or not things work out and then maybe take the next step toward marriage. That's very common. Uh, Bradford Wilcox A professor at a university of Virginia says more than 60% of first marriages are now preceded by living together compared to virtually none 50 years ago. This is from the council on contemporary families. It says in the last 50 years, the percentage of men and women who cohabit before marriage has increased by almost 900%. I mean, it's very common today to live with your partner before you get married. The Pew Research Center says in a 2010 research survey, nearly two-thirds, 64% of respondents who have ever lived with an unmarried partner say they thought it was a step toward marriage. So they view this as like a prelude to marriage, sort of like, you know, playing house to see whether or not this is actually going to work. You know, what you'll, you'll often hear people say is, you know, you wouldn't just go out and buy a car without test driving it, right? I mean, that's insane. I remember uh, talking to this woman, and she uh, started dating this guy. And her mom sat her down. She said, I just want to talk to you and, and ask you a few questions about your new relationship. And she was like, yeah. And uh, her mom said, uh, are you guys having sex? And they had been dating for like, you know, maybe a couple months. And she's like, um, no, we're not. And she's like, you know, I really would encourage you to do that. Because, um, you know, what if there are problems? How would you know you're com- if you're compatible unless you're sleeping uh, with your boyfriend? And so that must have been a really awkward conversation. <laughs> Be like, okay, I'm leaving now. See ya. You know, one of the problems with this this type of thinking is that it equates a human being with a car, right? That's kind of the problem here, right? It's It's a category error. Human beings are not cars. And so we don't test drive our partner to see whether or not they're going to be useful to us and are going to meet our needs. So I think when we talk about cohabitation, you know, where we live together, Our culture assumes that this is exactly, you know, what you need to do if you want to have a successful marriage. And yet it raises the question, does it actually increase the odds of success in marriage? Based on all the research that's been done, the majority of research suggests that um, at best, cohabitation doesn't really help the odds of you succeeding in marriage. At worst, it actually can make it worse. Here's from uh, an excerpt from the Encyclopedia of Human Relationships, which says that most people, especially young people, assume 
that trying to live together should improve the odds of doing well in marriage. Yet no study supports this idea. On average, those who cohabit prior to marriage are more likely to divorce, are less happy in their marriages, have higher levels of conflict, and less confidence about their futures. Again, here's Wilcox. He says, The belief that living together before marriage is a useful way to find out whether you're really getting along and thus avoid a bad marriage and an eventual divorce is now widespread among young people. But the available data on the effects of cohabitation fail to confirm this belief. In fact, a substantial body of evidence indicates that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's conventional wisdom in our culture that you should live with your person, your partner, before ever thinking about getting married. That that's going to increase your probability of success in marriage. And yet, the evidence seems to suggest just the opposite. You know, it sort of makes sense when you go into a marriage having cohabited with that person. When you're cohabiting with somebody, you're putting them on trial. You're sort of determining, do I want you? And so when you go into marriage with that same mentality, it's really difficult, I think, to switch gears and feel like, well, now I'm committing myself wholly to this person. Instead, there's always this, you know, doubt that sort of is in the back of your mind. Well, maybe this won't work and I just will walk away from this. And so the foundations of marriage are based on a commitment of self-sacrifice, of love, instead of this desire to have my needs met and to look at this person and see, are they going to meet my needs the way that I want? Paul Amato, a professor of sociology at Penn State, in his book called Alone Together, says, uh, recent studies indicate that the increased divorce, risk of divorce associated with premarital cohabitation has remained constant across recent decades. He says, individuals who cohabited with their spouses before marriage compared to individuals who did not reported more marital conflict, problems, and divorce proneness. This pattern of findings is consistent with the belief that something about the experience of cohabitation lowers subsequent marital quality. Popeno and Whitehead from Rutgers give an explanation. They say, while marriages are held together largely by a strong ethic of commitment, cohabiting relationships by their very nature tend to undercut it. They point out that secular individualism, which is predominant in our culture, leads to lower marriage success because the traditional nuclear family is somewhat inegalitarian, not only between husbands and wives, but also parents and children. And that requires the suppression of some individuality. In other words, you know, when you get married, there is sort of a surrender of some of your rights in order to make things work. Because if you got everything that you wanted, then there's no such thing as compromise. Whereas when you're cohabiting, there's always this escape clause. I can just leave whenever I want, and it's not going to be that messy. They say, after five to seven years, 39% of all cohabiting couples have broken their relationship. 40% have married, although the marriage might not have lasted, and only 21% are still cohabiting. 
So the, the statistics seem grim. And, you know, in recent years, people have tried to parse out these studies and point out that, you know, these studies tend to favor or select uh, people from certain demographics. And so, you know, when you, when you uh, take that out, some of these different factors, like being lower income or uh, being a serial cohabitor, that things look a lot better. And yet the raw data seems to suggest that overall, the picture is pretty bleak when it comes to cohabitation. He says in verse 12 and 13, to the rest I say this, uh, if, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. And so one of the things that God says is that we should uh, resist divorce that um, God is against it, even though it's something that is very uh, predominant in our culture. You know, when you look at divorce, it impacts people, uh, families and the individuals getting divorced. You know, it damages not only families, but especially children. You know, when you look at some of the research that's been done on divorce, They've done longitudinal studies on children of divorce where they have followed these children over 25 years to see where they're at after their parents got divorced. And really no study um, seems to contradict the idea that children of divorce are at a, a great disadvantage and face a lot of problems compared to those coming from intact families. For example, children lose time with their parents, especially their father. Here's a Jane Anderson, a professor of pediatrics at University of California, San Francisco. She says parents must adjust to their own losses as well as to their new role as divorced parents. Thus, parents may not have as much emotional strength and time to invest in parenting, i.e. the parents experience a moratorium on parenting. Some of us experience that. You know, when we went through our parents' divorce, uh, our parents were unavailable. They were emotionally checked out because they were dealing with their own stuff. And as they were recovering for several years, you know, we were, we were just uh, left having to deal with things on our own. Often children of divorce experience poverty on signi or significant loss of household income. Here's another study from Anderson where she says custodial mothers experience a loss of 25 to 50% of their pre-divorce income. Even five years after divorce, mothers who remain single have only risen to 94% of their pre-divorce income, while continuously married couples have increased their income. In fact, um, you know, only 50% of custodial mothers actually have a um, child support agreement with their ex-husbands. And only 25% of those with custodial agreements are actually getting child support payments. And so, you know, many of us have grown up and it may be a single parent home and had to experience, you know, our, our uh, dad not paying for child support. And our mom having to work two jobs just to make ends meet. Divorce impacts children's future ability to form healthy romantic relationships. 
This is uh, Nicholas Wolfinger. What a great name, right? <laughs> Professor of sociology at the University of Utah. He says, if your parents are divorced or were divorced, you're at least 40% more likely to get divorced than if they weren't. If your parents married others after divorcing, you're 91% more likely to get divorced as a children of divorce. I mean, those are stunning figures. Divorce creates distrust among and, uh, uh, and belief that personal relationships are unreliable. This is uh, Paul Amato. He says, uh, two-thirds of the children experience the multiple marriages and divorces plus the unrecorded broken love affairs and temporary cohabitations of one or, or one or more of their parents. Less than 10% of the children had parents who established stable, lasting second marriages in which the children felt fully welcomed and included. You know, some of us grew up in a divorced home and uh, our parent remarried, got divorced again, had a boyfriend who lived with us for a while, We've seen many men come through our lives. And, you know, there's this sense like, I'm never going to be able to form a relationship if it's going to look like this. Children of single parents are twice as likely to have emotional and behavioral problems, 8% versus 4% for children from two-parent households. Also, children of divorce suffer from anxiety and depression more than children from intact homes. This is from Jocelyn Brown, professor of pediatrics at Columbia University, says, a study of almost one million children in Sweden demonstrated that children growing up with single parents were more than twice as likely to experience a, a serious psychiatric disorder, commit or attempt suicide, or develop an alcohol addiction. In addition to this, children living with married parents are less likely to be or abused or neglected. Uh, the Center for Disease Control says, in one study, the relative risk that children from a single-parent family would be physically abused or neglected more than double. Part of this is that when you have a boyfriend who's living with your mom, um, you know, uh, a lot of times the boyfriend is, is physically or sexually abusing the kids. Children of divorce did poor academically than those from intact families. And children living with single parents are less likely to experience upward financial mobility. In other words, uh, when you compare children of divorce with children coming from intact homes, the amount of money they made over the course of their lifetime was significantly larger than those from divorced homes. So, you know, you look at this, and these are just really sobering statistics. A lot of times, you know, people will say, well, um, Divorce is probably the only thing that we should, you know, that it's the right thing to do because, you know, we're doing it for the kids. And yet all of the studies seems to suggest that just the opposite. In addition to this, divorce usually solves nothing. Uh, Rebecca Kippen, professor uh, at the University of Melbourne, says, if you and your partner had, uh, have had previous marriages, you're 90% more likely to get divorced than if this had been the first marriage for both of you. And so the thought that, you know, maybe I'll find somebody who's more compatible, who's going to love me more. Uh, and then usually when they marry that person, they end up divorced. 
Well, in verse 14, Paul says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Okay. Uh, Some of us are allergic to, like, church words, right? (laughs) And you see a word like sanctified and holy, and you're like, what does that even mean? Sanctified just simply means to be made separate or distinct. And so what God is essentially saying is that he takes exception of our, our non-believing family. That when you have a believer in a nuclear family, God actually um, takes exception of your family members and works to see them come to Christ. And um, that's been my experience. I remember when I first uh, started following God seriously, I, I was talking to my dad about Christianity and things had gotten so tense. We got into this one knockdown, drag out fight. And he was just like, look, don't ever talk to me about this again. And for like seven years, we never talked about it. It was such a tense subject. And then finally, you know, my grandmother died and things just seemed to be different. My dad started asking spiritual questions and initiating uh, these spiritual conversations. And over the course of several months of having pretty intense dialogue with my dad, he ended up receiving Christ. And, um, you know, currently it's, it's amazing. My uh, father-in-law was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, um, you know, uh, it seems as if God has been using this as an opportunity to... Uh, get them to start thinking about things um, more seriously. And actually, this woman in our fellowship started getting together with my mother-in-law, you know, every two or three months. And they're, they're looking at the Bible. She's talking to, him, to her about Jesus. And um, it's funny because we get these updates from uh, this woman in fellowship because my mother-in-law will never talk to us about it. So we're hearing about all these amazing conversations that they're having. But every time we see, you know, our, our, my mother-in-law, I'm just like, oh, hey, how are things going, you know, even though I have this information. <laughs> and so, you know, you might, you might be frustrated with your family because you've tried to reach out to them. They seem resistant or even unwilling. Um, you should trust that God is in control of the situation and that he loves your family more than you love them. And wants to see those, you know, your family members come to Christ. Verse 15 and 16. If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you, O wife, know whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you'll save your wife? In other words, look, if you are a believer and you got saved while you uh, were married and your spouse never comes to Christ, You shouldn't actively divorce them. But if they decide they want to leave, don't chase them down. Um, You know, maybe God is trying to spare you. Uh, Because, you know, it's really difficult to be married to somebody who doesn't possess the same values. Or be married to somebody who isn't committed to God to the extent that you are. Or sees it as a nuisance. Finally, he says, nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. And that's really the the principle, the basis for all of this conversation. 
that God is sovereign. He's called you in a specific time in your life. And so we shouldn't try to run away from that. You know, some of us, we have ants in our pants. You know, we're, we're never content uh, with our lives. We always feel like the grass is greener on the other side. And so we always tell ourselves, you know, if, if only I had this job, if only I had this opportunity, if I, only I had a girlfriend or boyfriend, or only if I had, you know, this other, this other woman or man instead of the person who I married, then things would be really good. And yet, it discounts the fact that God is sovereign in your life, that every circumstance that you're in, God allowed that to come into your life for your good and for the benefit of other people. All right, let's draw some application here. I think, first of all, to the unmarried, being single is a gift from God. I may not feel that way. But um, let me tell you, as a married person, it's not like, you know, all of your problems disappear once you get married. Look at your married friends. You know, uh, being single is awesome. And one of the things that I, I notice when you encounter people who are just so obsessed, so absorbed with getting a girlfriend or boyfriend is that they miss opportunities to enjoy their life as a single person and often leave their single lives with regret. Secondly, don't take matters into your own hand. God wants to uh, give you a successful, enjoyable sex life, but he wants to make sure that you do that within the context of marriage. You know, contrary to what our culture would say, marriage isn't outdated. It's God's provision for sexuality. And as we mentioned, you know, you, you would think that married sex sucks. But actually, uh, research suggests that married people have better sex and more frequently than those people who are, you know, uh, going around sleeping with people. And finally, as you wait on God to provide, improve your chances of success in marriage. You know, as you read those statistics about divorce, uh, you, know, you might be like sinking in your chair, feeling like, am I ever going to have a shot at a successful relationship? Well, I think that God has the power to transform your life. And he has the power to give you a successful marriage. I know people who have come from divorced homes who, you know, experienced a lot of the problems uh, that you would see from children of divorce. And yet, you know, here they are 15, 20 years later with a successful, happy marriage following God. So it's possible. But I think what you have to focus on is growing with God and allowing God to transform your character. You know, the problem isn't that you can't find somebody who loves you enough. The problem is that you are a selfish person. <laughs> Just like everybody else, right? And when you go into a marriage thinking, what can I get out of this? Where we put ourselves first. That's a recipe for disaster. To the married Learn how to build a successful marriage based on self-sacrificial love. That's the foundation for a successful marriage. Secondly, don't give up. You know, some of us are experiencing some trouble in our marriage. 
And, um, you know, maybe we're entertaining thoughts like, well, maybe this isn't going to work. And, um, you know, I've seen people who have got, gotten married in our fellowship, people my age who are now divorced. Also, don't get fatalistic. God can change even a bad marriage. And finally, get help. That's one of the big reasons why people suffer in marriage and continue to have problems is that they're so prideful they won't ask for help. And so if you're here, you're married, and you're having trouble in your marriage, go outside of, you know, your marriage to go and find some help. People who would give you some wise advice about um, getting your relationship mended. All right. Why don't we just uh, end our time in prayer? Yeah, Lord, I think uh, many of us are sitting here tonight and um, are recalling uh, growing up in a broken home and, uh, you know, the pain that we feel from that. And um, I think that in our culture today, there's a cynicism toward marriage that it's even possible to have a successful marriage. And um, I pray that uh, we would see clearly that um, the vision that you give for marriage is one that's possible and one that's actually going to be uh, fulfilling and happy. And uh, we thank you for the gift of marriage and uh, pray that, you know, as, as single people, uh, we would grow uh, spiritually and, and develop in our character so that we can become people uh, who can have a successful marriage. And I pray, you know, finally for those of us, you know, who don't know you, we know that uh, the basis for uh, all of this is the fact that you love us and that you want a relationship with us. And I pray if uh, any, of our, any of us are here tonight and um, aren't sure if we have a relationship with you, that we would uh, call out to you and uh, ask to see if you're real. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.